3: Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the October 20th, 1943 morning edition of CBS News of the World. It includes analysis and updates on the war from Australia, Algiers, London, Moscow, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a brick pickle media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash WW2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast.
1: Two gains are reported for the Allied armies in Italy. The Russians have cut the main escape corridor for the Germans at Nipropotrovsk. In Moscow, official silence shrouds the tripartite conferences. In the South Pacific, the Japs at Rabaul, New Britain have been hit
0: again. And here is Alan Jackson. Before hearing from Columbia's correspondents abroad, here is the latest report on the situation in Yugoslavia. A partisan communique tells of the first success achieved by Marshal Rommel... since he took over the Yugoslav battleground. Using a fresh German division rushed from northern Italy... Rommel has broken through partisan lines and recaptured both Susak and the important junction of Ogolin. Susak is opposite Fiume, and o- Ogolin is located on the railroad between Fiume and Budapest. On the other side of the ledger, the Yugoslav partisans have smashed a German seaborne attempt to land troops on the Dalmatian coast and on two nearby islands in the Adriatic. That's the Yugoslav picture this morning. In the Far East, British Viscount Wavell has been sworn in as the 19th Viceroy and Governor General of India. The story from the Southwest Pacific this morning tells of more air successes for our side. For that, we take you to CBS Australia, William J. Dunn reporting. Japanese
3: suffered extremely heavy air loss south, Southwest Pacific during the past week, but they are still able to put planes in the air in large, if ineffective, numbers. Our latest raid under of all, by unescorted Mitchell medium bombers, was intercepted by 60 Jap fighters. Twice in the past 72 hours, the enemy has set sizable forces on futile missions to Oral Bay, the Allied base almost directly north of Port Moresby. Finchhaven was attacked by escorted bombers twice in the same period, and Jap planes have been encountered throughout the area ever since the big revolt raid last week. The knowledge that the enemy apparently is making air reinforcements is, of course, important. But it's much more important to know that the reinforcement is no more effective than the somewhat of strength strengths The place. fighters ask nothing better than a chance to intercept an unescorted flight of enemy bombers. When the enemy intercepted our unescorted Mitchells after the last attack on the he lost 24 of his 60 interceptors, certainly, and another six probably. Half his force, a rather steep price for, six, or for three missiles. The attacks on Oral Bay were even more disastrous to the enemy. The first cost 46 plane shutdowns, 11 damage. And the price of the second was 24 of 35 definitely destroyed, six probable. In return for these two dismal failures, he scored four Allied fighters shot down and others damaged. Get your pencil out and you'll see that those figures add up to 94 enemy planes shot down in free engagement, 12 others probable, and 11 damaged. An all for an enemy gain of seven Allied planes. Japan is learning a bitter lesson in the Southwest Pacific, a lesson which began months ago and is becoming more and more evident daily. It isn't enough. Keep replacing your losses with brand-new airplanes unless your brand-new pilots have the skill necessary to handle them against the fall. Japan's brand-new pilots are obviously lacking in that skill, and the majority of them aren't living long enough to acquire it. This is William J. Dunn in Australia. I return you to CBS in New York.
0: Around the world, allied forces in Italy have plunged ahead for new gains. For the latest developments in that campaign, we take you now to CBS Algiers. John Daly reporting.
1: This morning's official communique just released says flatly that the battle for the crossings of the Volturno River is over. A bird's-eye view of the Volturno front yesterday we had shown Allied troops and armor moving across the river at will. Allied forces are massing now on the south bank of the canal running parallel to and four miles north of the Volturno, and that canal has already been crossed by American forces at its eastern end. A look at the plain north of the canal would show the enemy on the move with everything pointing to a steady withdrawal to the protection of the Masico Ridge, more than four miles north of the canal. The whole center of the Allied line on the 100-mile front stretching across Italy moved forward yesterday from five to seven miles, overrunning the towns of Pignatoro, Racca Romano, and Dragoni. These advances made on the right flank of Lieutenant General Mark Clark's Fifth Army present the greatest threat to the enemy. More than any other factor, this threat to the German left flank has forced the abandonment of the flat country north of the Volturno. A steady enemy retreat is expected in this area... with the Germans taking a new line... anchored at Mandragone on the Tyrrhenian coast... running through the Masico Ridge for about 27 miles to Venafro. In furious, frustrated rage... the German forces facing the 5th Army right flank in central Italy... are carrying out a vicious campaign of destruction and murder... against the Italian population. Official reports tell of a reign of fire and terror. Towns are being blown up, farmhouses burned cattle slaughtered and grain and haystocks set on fire. But worst of all is the cold-blooded murder of civilians. On the 8th Army front, there was a good deal of heavy fighting. Pecciata, eight miles from Termoli on the Adriatic coast, was captured after a full-blown assault by infantry, supported by tanks and artillery. The Germans are evidently going to make a stand. They show strength in both the San Stefano and Baranello areas, and patrol activity has largely given way to heavy action. In the air, heavy, medium, light, and fighter bombers heavily attacked enemy airfields, motor transport, bridges, and rail and highway junctions yesterday. 4 moted liberators carried out a surprise raid on the east coast just after dawn and paralyzed the Adriatic Coastal Railroad between Ancona and Pescara at four important points. Many aircraft were destroyed on enemy airfields in yesterday's operations, and one enemy fighter was shot down. None of our planes are missing. A naval communique reports that two British destroyers intercepted two Italian steamers in the Adriatic last Saturday. One with a German armed guard was taken into harbour. The other manned
0: by Germans was set on fire and had to be sunk. Now back to CBS in New York. Next, a report on news developments in Britain. We take you now to CBS London. Paul Manning reporting. Yesterday's speech by Field Marshal Smuts has made a deep impression upon London. His pronouncement
2: that the grand assault by all arms is timed for next year puts at rest the idea here that we will invade in 1943. People who held that idea remember the last time he spoke so accurately was when Rommel stood at El Alamein and the Germans were still attacking at Stalingrad. It was then, in 1942, that he announced the Second Front idea of that year had been discarded in favor of the North African campaign. His speech at the Guildhall is called by most newspapers this morning as, as a speech distinguished by its breadth and vision. His words certainly reveal no illusions about the task which lies ahead. His reference that American troops may have to play the decisive part reveals that the war cabinet here do not underestimate the job of invading Western Europe. They fear that casualties will be high and that British manpower alone is not sufficient for the assignment. Although Smuts virtually closed the door on 1943, his emphasis on the importance of the next six months underlines that time is now on the side of Hitler. The longer his armies remain nearly intact, the stronger his defenses, and the weaker becomes resistance in Europe. In London, we've been reading dispatches from Stockholm about a new German secret bomb. Well, those which have fallen on England, according to the Germans, have made actually little impression here so far. Air activity last night was all one-sided. The RAF stayed on the ground while a few German planes tried to keep London awake once again. A few bombs were dropped in the British capital and on targets in eastern England. That much-discussed issue of the five American senators came up in Parliament again this morning. One member wanted to know whether the senators had been slighted during their visit here. Deputy Prime Minister Aftley replied that every courtesy had been shown them, but... Quite naturally, they had been more eager to visit U.S. camps and airfields in the House of Commons. Beyond this, there will be very little more said about the senators here. London would like to let the whole matter drop, as Mr. Churchill indicated in Parliament yesterday. The question of trying Rudolph Hess and other war criminals was also raised in Parliament, but that was put off until a future date. City officials in London are worried about many problems these days. One of them is the inflation which has swept this capital and most other large British cities. People have few things to spend their money on and lots of money. So gambling is booming, theaters are packed, restaurants are jammed, and rents in London have reached a new all-time
0: high. Now back to CBS and New York. A broadcast from Brazil reports that the selection of troops for the Brazilian Expeditionary Force will begin today at two medical centers in Rio de Janeiro. The Red Armies of Russia are still rumbling ahead this morning, and in Moscow, the tripartite conferences go into another day, shrouded somewhat by official silence. We take you now to CBS Moscow, Bill Downs reporting.
4: Secretary of State Hull this morning met with his staff of military, political, and economic experts preparatory to the second session of the historic three-power conference. The Secretary of State and Mr. Eden will meet with Mr. Molotov this afternoon to continue the discussions aimed at winning the war as soon as possible and establishing a protracted world peace. I won't be able to tell you anything about this second session until tonight. Since the end of the first meeting yesterday, all three foreign ministers have been busy assigning work to various members of their staff. No military men attended the first session. Mr. Hall took along the State Department's political and legal legal advisors and a representative of the European Division. The point of the conference thus far is all business. The daily routine presumably will follow the pattern of today's events. The foreign ministers will confer with their staffs each morning on the questions of the day. Then the three statesmen will meet in the afternoon, and maybe at night, for their conference. We don't know much about the history that is being made here in Moscow today, but the but history of a more definite kind is being manufactured down in the Ukraine. The Red Army has struck a sensational new salient, deep into the elbow of the big weeper bend. The Russians have driven a wedge. 30 miles deep towards the heart of the railroad network that feeds the area on the inside of the Dnieper Elbow. This wedge, which breaks the river line about midway between Kremenchug and Dnieper-Petrovsk, threatens to disrupt the entire German railroad network, which is supplying the battlefronts at Dnieper-Petrovsk, Laperosia, Malatopo, and the Crimea. It is a daring piece of strategy. Another red army today is advancing on Kiev from the north. Here, the Russians are only some six miles from the northern outskirts of Kiev, and spreading out from the an enveloping movement. Meanwhile, other Soviet forces are still pounding away on the eastern outskirts of the city. Heavy Russian artillery is hurling shell after shell into the Nazi positions protecting the
0: direct route into Kiev. I return now to CBS in New York. The news picture from Washington this morning is topped by a number of domestic issues. President Roosevelt is preparing a strongly worded message to Congress in support of the food subsidy program. And tomorrow, the president meets with the Labor's War Board of Union Leaders to talk over the labor front situation. In Congress, Republican members of the House Ways and Means Committee have come out flatly against any further federal taxation, a move which seems to have put a definite damper on the administration's tax bill. And that's the top news from Washington. Speaking in Dallas, Texas last night, Vice President Wallace said that organized labor is strong enough to combat successfully what he termed those businessmen who want a showdown in terms of power. Mr. Wallace said the nation's prosperity depends on cooperation and understanding between business, agriculture, and labor. In the Midwest, the country's corn belt farmers are preparing to market the biggest hog crop in in history. Uh, but don't look forward to any extra meat on the table. For the food experts in Chicago tell us that a severe meat shortage is in store for next year. The meat industry believes the huge increase in pork will not compensate for reduced amounts of other meats, particularly beef. An announcement in New York has given a new ray of hope to the radio manufacturers. The general idea is that civilians may be able to buy new radios sooner than expected after the war if the surplus equipment of the armed forces is made available to the public and the War Production Board says that a wide assortment and a large volume of government-owned radio apparatus will be released soon after the war is over. And that's the latest news. Once again, Columbia has brought you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. This morning you heard from William J. Dunn in Australia, John Daly in Algiers, Paul Manning in London, and Bill Downs in Moscow. This is Alan Jackson reporting for CBS World News...